I was really just in front of peak colors up in Minnesota and Iowa and Illinois and Wisconsin and even into Missouri. Uh, so that was just really gorgeous seeing all those burnt oranges and reds. It's like somebody melted crayons into the trees. Episode 340, Will Collins is back to update us on the rest of his trip down the mighty Mississippi in a canoe. You're listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180 Tech. We talk with adventurers from around the globe to bring you the inspiration and motivation you need to get started in the outdoors or to keep you moving if you're already there. Now here's your host, Kurt Linville. Hello, thank you so much for listening again to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Kurt here. I have Will Collins back with us, and a lot of you probably remember, it wasn't that long ago that Will was on the show in episode 331. He was a little over halfway down the Mississippi in a canoe, canoeing the full length of the Mississippi from source to sea, and he has completed the journey, and I got him to commit to coming back on to telling us the second half of the story. So I'm so excited to hear about how the lower river went. Last time we talked... He was near Cairo, Illinois, and so he went from there down the rest of the river since then. So, Will, how long was it since we talked last? It's probably been, what, a month? Yeah, it's been it's been a little while. Um, I don't know the exact uh, the exact number, but yeah, maybe a little over a month or so. And uh, I am back here in uh, in South Dakota, the great state of South Dakota, where I'm uh, where I live and off the river and I just finished up, uh, on well, two Saturdays ago, it would have been just finished up, uh, in the Gulf of Mexico and boy, it was, uh, it, it was quite the adventure. And since we last spoke, Kurt, uh, it, the river is completely different really to tell you the truth from, uh, from the first 65 days. Uh, I, I ended up in the Gulf of Mexico after 103 days and uh, 2,500 miles roughly of, uh, of river miles paddled from source to sea, as you mentioned. And uh, it was it was just an epic, uh, an epic adventure and something that uh, I'll certainly carry with me uh, throughout the rest of my life. Wow. Well, that's so cool, man. So for our listeners, go back to episode, let's see, what did I say it was? 321. Go back to episode 321 if you haven't heard the first part. Listen to the first part before you listen to this one, because this is the continuing saga of the Mississippi River journey. So anyway, go back to 321 and then listen to this one. But So Will, let's pick up kind of where we left off, but a couple of bullet points just to get people kind of into the, the rhythm of the adventure. You uh, decided to do this trip. I mean, you're going to test my memory here. Decided to do this trip. It just felt like it was the right time in life to do something epic. It's something you'd been thinking about for a long time. And you decided that you were willing to quit your job if that's what it took. And you went into your boss and you said, I've just got to do this. Um, what do you think? And they gave you a leave of absence so that you could go and then come back again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Kurt. That's uh, you pretty much hit the nail on the head there. Uh, seems like your memory is not, not too bad. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that, that's exactly what happened. And you know, it wasn't necessarily the, the perfect time in my life, but, uh, you know, I, I don't have too much, too much going on. It was just one of those, uh, scenarios where there was a calling in, in my gut and I'd put it off for about a year or so. Uh, and every time I thought about it, I would get tense and, uh, and excited and, and just know deep down that it was something that I had to do. So I was, uh, I was able to to have that conversation with the boss, and that was probably the scariest scariest conversation I had uh, 
in regards to the whole entire trip. I was nervous going in that office, but uh, it, it worked out, and it uh, yeah, it was just uh, an absolutely amazing journey, and uh, I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Well, the reason I wanted to tell that part of the story is because it stood out to me in the last one because you got committed to doing something that you knew would create a, a boy, a, a lifelong memory, something that would uh, always be there. And you were so committed to that idea that you were willing to quit your job for it. And when you stepped forward, you didn't have to quit your job. Things start working out when you pursue a dream like this. And I just think that was so cool. So it's inspirational. And that's one of the uh, one of the big things that I took away from this trip, Kurt, is that once you, you know, it's always scary, no matter what it is, whether it's an adventure, whether you're trying to start a new business venture or, or whatever it is, it's always scary to step out on that ledge. But uh, once you take that step and, and you fully commit to it, people come out of the woodwork to help you and, and people recognize that you're trying to follow your passion and, and they respect that. And uh, at least that's what I've found. And, and it's, it's hard to take that first step, but once you take the plunge, uh, you, you might think you're alone. I certainly thought that uh, I would be kind of doing this solo and uh, most people would dismiss me as crazy, which <laughs> I am and a lot of folks did. But w- <laughs> once you take that, uh, once you take that plunge, people come out of the woodwork that are that are willing to help. Yeah, you know, that really is true. You've heard people say probably will, you know, if you catch yourself on fire, then the world will gather around to watch you burn. Okay, w- this isn't really what we're talking about here, but the point is that when you step out on a limb, then people step up to the plate to say, wow, I want to be a part of that somehow. And that's just, it's a common theme with the people that we visit with about, you know, these adventure sports. And I I just throw it out there because we all have a dream and we all wish that we could do something. And it's so easy to say, oh, it just wouldn't work out. But you never know until you actually say, I'm going, I'm doing what's going to happen. But not everybody was supportive. Some people did think you were crazy. Did you get a lot of uh, pushback when you told everybody, I'm going? Oh, yeah, cer- certainly. Uh, especially before, when, once I had stepped out and, and kind of proclaimed that this is what I was doing and things were in the works, but I wasn't fully on the trip yet. Uh, yeah, a- absolutely. Lots of, uh, and even on the trip, I mean, uh, all, all kinds of people telling me I'm crazy. And like I said, I, <laughs> I, I certainly am. You got to be a little crazy to do, to do something like that. But, uh, yeah, lots of doubters, but at the same time, you know, uh, there's, there's a small percentage of people that are able to go out there and, and really do what they want and, uh, and not, you know, not, uh, be afraid of, of those consequences. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a different thinking process, but, uh, you got to do what you, you got to follow what your heart says. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, a couple more highlights from the first episode. You had started at the source, which you named the lake and I don't remember the name of it, but the source of the Mississippi. And what was the name of that little lake? Lake Itasca up in Northern Minnesota. And uh, at times it wasn't even really canoeable. You were like dragging your canoe through marshland and stuff, but then it became navigable, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The first stretch was uh, it was pretty wild. When you think of the Mississippi River, you think of a big roaring, uh, or at least slow flowing, but massive river. And yeah, up up uh, just south of Lake Itasca, the first couple of days, 
There was beaver dams that you'd have to drag your boat over. There was sections of it where the width was smaller than the uh, smaller than the canoe, so you had to kind of tromp through knee-deep mud in the swamps of uh, northern Minnesota. And then eventually, yeah, it became navigable. And uh, the farther south I got, the uh, the larger the river got. And I think in our last episode, Kurt, I left you just north of uh, of Cairo, Illinois, which is the southern border of Illinois. And that's also where the uh, Ohio River dumps into the Mississippi. And boy, once that Ohio dumps into the Mississippi, that is a big, big river. Uh, I mean, there's sections of it that are a mile, mile and a half, close to two miles wide as you get farther south uh, down into Louisiana and Mississippi. And uh, it's a it's a beast of a river. Oh, man. Yeah, no doubt about it. You know, I previously said on the show that I believe that the water is kind of the life's blood of the planet. And if you want to know how healthy you are, you go to the doctor, then he's going to take some blood and do some analysis and come back and say, you know, this is your your health level based on vitamins and minerals and, you know, pH and saline and glucose and everything else. But he looks at your blood and he says, this is how healthy you are. When we look at a waterway, we can see the health of the land, right? And yeah. you, uh, you reported back when, you know, you were a few miles south of St. Louis and there at Cairo, you, uh, you said, you know, it's actually been pretty nice. It's been pretty pristine so far, and you were surprised at how nice the Mississippi had been. So how did it develop after that? What would you call the quality of the water as you continued south? I would say, I would, obviously, it's, uh, it's, it's dark. It's not like a clear water. It's a dark, muddy water with all the different uh, waterways that spill into it. It drains... Uh, any state between the Appalachians and the Rockies, uh, all the water runs into the Mississippi. So it's a lot of, a lot of water that it drains, but as far as the wilderness and as far as the, the ecosystem, uh, I mean, in, in my mind, I was pleasantly surprised throughout the whole time. There really wasn't too much trash or, or litter, you know, every once in a while you'd see something washed up on shore, but, uh, very, very minimum. And, yeah, it was absolutely beautiful. I mean, just just really, really gorgeous. And then uh, by by the time you get down into southern Louisiana, it's just I haven't spent too much time down there before, and it's it's a different world, Kurt. It's uh, uh, the bayous of southern Louisiana, swampland and cypress trees and uh, alligators and all, all kinds of uh, wild stuff down there that I didn't really have too much experience with. So I, I was I was pretty neat. <laughs> that sounds great. You know, another highlight from the last show is that you were just so impressed with how friendly and helpful the people had been along the way. Uh, people inviting you to stay with them, people offering you food, and even a man that gave you a top-end canoe. Yeah, absolutely. That was uh, that was a wild story. I just happened to uh, to run into the owner of the Winona Canoe Company in Winona, Minnesota, as I as I rolled through town there uh, in, in Minnesota, and he hooked me up with a uh, with a great canoe, and I ended up finishing that one out all the way to the Gulf from Winona, and. Yeah, the, the, the hospitality of people throughout the river just continued on. Uh, I mean, it's, once I got into the south, they say southern hospitality. Well, uh, that, that's a real thing. I was uh, I was blessed to meet so many amazing people in uh, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I met a couple, uh, and they welcomed me into their uh, their tailgate for the LSU Texas A and M football game. So <laughs> I was able to take in some uh, some southern tailgating, and uh, they. 
they hooked me up with a free ticket to the game as well. Wow. And in, uh, let's see, I stayed in Natchez, Mississippi and, and was able to, uh, to stay with some folks there and, and was showing all around town and, uh, had a few cold ones at, uh, under the Hill saloon there in Natchez, Mississippi. That was wonderful. And, uh, on my last night uh, in southern Louisiana before reaching the Gulf, I ended up camping with uh, probably about 10 or 15 uh, duck hunters who were out to the one camp spot uh, that wasn't completely swampland uh, shy of the Gulf. And uh, those guys took me in with open arms and we had a bit of a little party there on, on the last night before I reached the Gulf the next morning. And uh, it, it was uh, it was a really amazing experience. And the people, the people along the way were, were amazing. So I got to ask now that it's done, you know, your, uh, your journey impacted your life in a lot of different ways. I know that no one finishes a journey, the same person that they started. What changed in you? Yeah, I don't know if I can pinpoint exactly what, uh, what changed I me mean, to tell you the truth, Kurt, because I really haven't had too much time to stop and think about it. I, uh, I got back, back late on a Tuesday night and, uh, 10 AM on a Tuesday night and was at work six morning. So, you know, it's, it's kind of one of those things I think where, uh, it's almost like growing, uh, in terms of physical height as a kid, you never recognize when you're growing, but then you look two months later and you're, uh, you've shot up. And so I don't know, I don't know if I could tell you a specific thing that's changed, maybe, uh, some humility and I suppose being, uh, being more open to, to strangers and, and uh, I probably I've gained a, a better, uh, ability to, uh, to connect with, with strangers and, and, uh, open up. Hmm. That's cool. So did your perspective of the United States change in any way as a result of going down through the heart of it on the mighty river? It did. It did. I'll tell you the one thing that I said throughout, uh, throughout the trip, as we mentioned earlier, I stayed with all kinds of amazing folks in the river, people who, welcomed me into their house, strangers welcomed me into their house, cooked for me, let me do laundry at their place all along the river. I met, I met people like that. And the one thing that I would always, uh, I would always say is people would ask me, aren't you nervous uh, to be meeting all these people or staying with people who you don't know or, or things along those lines. And I would usually say, you know, the, the world and especially our country, if, if you turn off the news and you talk to people, it's a pretty darn good place People are good, uh, and I think the majority of people are good. So if you don't let some of the negative stuff that you hear on the news or that you read in the paper or whatever it may be affect you and, and you just take each interaction at face value, uh, I, I think it, it can do a world of good. And that's certainly what I picked up along the way is if you just sit down and talk to people, uh, they're willing to either help you out or, or learn their, learn your story or you can hear their story. And, uh, and it usually, uh, usually ends well. I think we got to talk about the logistics a little bit, because I know that some people are going to be saying, man, that is so cool. I'd like to do it. So I, uh, I guess the first big overarching question is, is it advisable? Was it a good idea in the end? Are you glad you did it? Is it advisable? I couldn't advise it more to anybody. I could not recommend <laughs> it more. If you have an adventurous bone in your body and you're looking for a, for a big trip to do, uh, especially in terms of logistics, if you're not much of a planner, and this is your trip. The Mississippi River, it was absolutely amazing, and it requires fairly little planning. I mean, you got to get a boat. you got to get to the headwaters. And then after that, uh, there, there's towns all along the way. 
I usually stopped uh, about once every five days to a week. Sometimes I'd go 10 days and, uh, and resupply with food and, uh, and get a burger and a beer at a, at a restaurant in town or something along those lines. But as far as planning, it's, it's pretty minimum, uh, that you need to do. Obviously everybody's different. Some folks are going to want to meticulously, uh, plan out every campsite. I was, I was pretty, uh, pretty loosey goosey with the details. I just kind of put in at the start and, uh, and pushed off and, and went from there. And it's, uh, it's a pretty easy trip to do logistically and, it's it's amazing absolutely i mean it's the it's the lifeblood of america the mississippi river runs through the heart of america i got to see 10 states uh, all throughout the uh, the midwest and into the south and really get a pulse of the country and uh, and the people and it was it was amazing i highly recommend it that's cool so what about lessons learned you know if people are thinking about doing this then uh, what did you pick up that you could share that would make their trip a little bit better maybe? I would say uh, obviously be open to uh, to encounters with people. Um, and from my personal experience, I would say plan a little bit longer maybe than you think uh, because – and it all depends on, on how you want to attack the trip, whether you're trying to just do – do a straight wilderness trip and push all the way through and stay every day on the river. But for me, I got a lot of joy from, from checking out all these river towns along the way. I mean, I stopped in dozens and dozens of, uh, of small towns along the Mississippi river, all the way from, uh, you know, Bemidji, Minnesota and in, in Northern Minnesota to, uh, some small towns South of New Orleans, uh, in Southern Louisiana and, and everything in between. And I thought it was neat just to see the culture of, of all the different river towns and, and all the different, uh, people who, who inhabit those river towns, because tell you what, some of the, uh, some of the Southern Cajuns in Southern Louisiana, that's, it's a whole different culture and, uh, and a whole different world than, and, uh, folks up in Northern Minnesota and, and everywhere in between is different as well. So uh, my piece of advice would, uh, would be to take a little time to, uh, take in, some of the sites and some of the towns along the way, and and you can get a feel for the folks who uh, who call the Mississippi home. Mm, yeah, yeah, good word. So you also had done some canoeing trips prior to this. This wasn't your first, you know, your first time around the block, but this was your biggest trip ever. And did you learn any canoeing tips or tricks that you would recommend for people? I did. Yeah. I, I learned, uh, I would say the two biggest takeaways that I learned, uh, in terms of paddling on this trip, uh, a, I actually used a, uh, a kayak paddle for about 90% of my paddling. And I found that, uh, being solo in a canoe, the kayak paddle gave me, uh, some more speed and just a little bit, uh, a little bit quicker reactions in terms of if I was trying to get away from a big barge or, or a boat. Uh, the kayak gave me a few miles an hour extra speed. And then also I learned that uh, depending on which way the wind is blowing, you can load your boat either towards the bow or towards the stern. If you have a headwind, you have more weight in the bow of your boat. It creates a slimmer profile uh, in the front and, and avoid some of that blowing that you might get that'll turn you to one side or turn you to the other side. And uh, same goes for the stern with a tailwind. So loading the front and back of your boat, depending on wind conditions, uh, certainly helped me out along the way. So I was thinking about what else would people need to know 
to uh, to successfully do this journey. And I know that there's a ton of stuff. Uh, how much uh, experience do you think people need in uh, canoeing and doing multi-day trips in a canoe before they dive into something like this? Personally, I would say very little. I would say very little. Uh, you, got, you got a long time to learn. So uh, up in northern Minnesota, the stakes are not very high. By the time you get to... Uh, New Orleans and, and Southern Louisiana and even Mississippi, uh, stakes are definitely higher with lots of traffic, freighters, ocean going vessels, barges, you name it. Uh, it's, it's pretty busy in the South of the river, but if, if you had little experience by the time you got there, you'd be able to, uh, to be comfortable. And up in Northern Minnesota where the river starts, uh, you know, it's, it's ankle deep and not, not very, uh, technical. So I would say if, I mean, I think the biggest important factor in terms of having a successful trip is uh is having a good attitude and just the will to to want to push through when when the days get tough uh as as any adventurer knows it's never uh it's never all all easy uh, you certainly have days where the wind's blowing and the rain is falling sideways and it's cold but uh those are the days that you got to be able to push through but in terms of experience man i'd say if, if you got an inclining for it and you've never been in a canoe pick up a boat, get out on the water a few days before you head out and just make it happen. Right on. It's official. Winter has arrived and Bentgate Mountaineering is prepared to help you get ready for your epic winter. Come check out the latest in Alpine Touring, Telemark, NTN, and Splitboarding gear. They have brands like Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Technica Blizzard, Arcteryx, Mammoth, Solomon, Vole, Never Summer, Jones, and BCA. And you do need to be safe out there. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear. They have beacons, airbags, shovels, and probes, and they're ready to help you educate yourself on snow safety. They also rent out gear so you can get your skis and your boots there as well as your avalanche safety equipment. What's more, they also have free demo ski days at local resorts so you can try out the latest gear. Now, how much fun does that sound? So swing by Bentgate in Golden, Colorado, or go to bentgate.com to find your new gear, as well as to get updates on all of their events. I believe. I believe that adventure sports will improve your health. I believe that adventure sports will improve your outlook on life. I believe that adventure sports will build community, heal families, and inspire children. I believe that adventure sports will improve this planet. And I believe that adventure is fun. Travis and I created the Adventure Sports Podcast because we believe that adventure sports can make a real difference in this world. The Adventure Sports Podcast creates joy, health, purpose, relationships, memories, and second chances. Do you believe? It is our goal in the new year to double the number of listeners to ASP. Why? To double the good the show is doing. We started this show on the last day of February nearly three years ago. So by the last day of February this year, we will be celebrating double the joy, double the health, double the memories, and double the second chances. This is our challenge to you. Do you believe? Join with us. Tell others about the show. Tell them about the 340-plus episodes of stories, examples, and inspiration. Tell them about this resource that is there for them to explore and encounter. 
kickstart their adventure. Kickstart a life. So how physical was the trip? You're going downstream, but like you just mentioned, you have days when the wind is not cooperating and and the river gets so big that uh, you could even be paddling against the current going downstream in places, right? (laughs) Because of eddies and what have you. So how physical did it turn out to be? Was it pretty exhausting or was it like, nah, I'm just coasting? Yeah, it was, uh, I would say it was somewhere in between. Um, Of course, when you get into the groove of it, uh, you're kind of used to it by the time you hit, you know, day 15, day 20, uh, it's like working out the first day you work out, you're going to be sore. But after that, you can kind of coast along with it. Uh, but the river never really, uh, flows quick enough that you can just sit in your boat and, and let the current push you kind of Huck Finn style. Like you might think in your head, uh, it's never really that quick, uh, as you get south, the river does pick up speed. The current picks up speed and allows you to make more miles a day. But it's still not quick enough to just, you know, take a nap on the river and, and, and let it coast. Uh, with that being said, I was paddling. I'd usually get on the water around 8, 9, or 10, depending on the day and, and how I was feeling. And I uh, would paddle all day until until sunset. So, Certainly a long time on the water, but, uh, and, and, and afterwards, once I was off the water, it set up camp, uh, you know, gathered firewood or set up the stove and got dinner going. I mean, by the time all that was said and done, I was, uh, I was down, down and out and ready, ready to hit the tent and ready to call tonight. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Well, you did this in the fall and, uh, that was kind of because that's the way it fell. That's what you said in the first show. Do you think you chose the right season for doing it? Yeah, I really do. I really do. Uh, a, it was just absolutely beautiful. I mean, the, I, I was kind of right on the line. I started on the 23rd of August in northern Minnesota. So I was kind of paddling the line of fall and summer. And as I as I worked south, you know, I was able to, to take in all the turning trees in the north country and uh, – just I was really just in front of peak colors up in Minnesota and Iowa and Illinois and Wisconsin and even into Missouri. Uh, so that was just really gorgeous, seeing all those burnt oranges and reds. It's like somebody melted crayons into the trees, mm. and uh, th- that was gorgeous. And then also the big uh, – two big things that I, that I liked about doing the trip in the fall is – a, it was cool at night, so uh, the mosquitoes weren't bad. You know, uh, I, I didn't really have mosquitoes until I got south into Mississippi and Louisiana, where it where it warmed up. And even then, uh, I had cool nights most of the time. A few nights, it was warm enough for the mosquitoes to come out. But uh, you know, with, with that being said, you get you get you do get cold nights. There was times where it was below freezing, and I was bundled up sleeping in the tent, but. Uh, you wear enough layers and you got a sleeping bag. It's not too big of an issue, but I, I, if I had to do it again, I would, I would do it in the fall and mosquitoes is the big reason. And then also once you get into the South, into Mississippi and Louisiana and Arkansas, uh, they say that summer heat can just melt a guy down there. And I didn't have to experience it uh, in in the heart of summer with that humidity as well. So I was paddling and it was 75 and sunny. and uh, mm, Perfect. I guess that I have a few questions just to kind of draw out more of the experience a little bit. 
what would you say was the most beautiful stretch of the river? Was there a section that just blew your mind with the natural beauty? Most beautiful sections of the river. Huh? I would say that in, uh, in southern Minnesota, northern Iowa, and uh, in Wisconsin as well, and even a little bit into uh, northern Illinois, it's an area there that they call the Driftless Section. And uh, it was un- unlike a lot of the Midwest, I guess the glaciers didn't uh, didn't roll through that area. So it's not flat. There's real big bluffs, uh, you know, several hundred feet bluffs. And uh, there's areas that look like you could even go rock climbing if you wanted to, which if you've never been there, it sounds wild to talk about that in Iowa and, uh, and Minnesota. But that section was absolutely stunning around Red Wing, Minnesota and Winona, Minnesota. Just really, really beautiful, big, tall granite bluffs hanging over the river. That section was uh, was gorgeous, and I really also enjoyed southern Louisiana. When you get into some of those bayous and uh, and gator territory and swampland, and uh, you know, there's all these trees that are sticking up out of the water and uh, cypress groves, and uh, it's it's just kind of a different world down there than what I'm used to. And that was, that was gorgeous as well. But really the whole trip, to tell you the truth, the, the whole stretch was, uh, was unique and, and beautiful. And it was, it was amazing. What kind of wildlife encounters did you have along the way? Yeah. So there was what, there was one instance, uh, you know, bears and moose and, uh, and all that stuff. I'm pretty used to, uh, camping in the Northland. I got a lot of experience and, and, don't, don't phase me too much. I kind of know how to handle th- those situations, but man, in Southern Louisiana, it's, it's a different game down there. And, uh, there, there was one night where I was paddling and, uh, sunset was coming in and I got off the water and I was, uh, was camping on a, a sandbar that butted right up to, uh, kind of like a forest, but it was a low lying forest. It was kind of a swampy, what you would imagine, a, like a Southern Louisiana, bayou swamp area so i pull off uh, right around sunset couldn't push anymore it was getting dark there's all kinds of huge ocean going vessels that are passing back and forth so you can't risk paddling at night with those and uh i set up my tent and i'm and i'm all ready to go and uh, as i'm walking back towards the boat to to load the last uh the last load of gear from the boat i look down and i see tracks in the sand and they they look a little bit like human handprints. I knew they weren't human, and I've never experienced alligators in my life. Uh, but as soon as I saw that track, I knew in my stomach. I was like, "Oh man, that's a that's a gator track, and that thing is fresh." <laughs> and I uh, so I, I had a little bit of service on my phone, so I Google gator tracks, and sure enough, the first image that pops up it's like a splitting image of the tracks that are in the sand, literally five feet from my campsite where I just set up my tent. And uh, so I, I look at those tracks and then I walk a little bit farther and I see another set of tracks. This time there was uh, two kind of handprint looking things on either side. And then in the middle, you could see where the gator's belly had been dragging in the sand. And he, there was a track back into the forested area that was behind me. So, with it being dusk and with it being night, I, uh, I wasn't able to get back on the water. So I was kind of stuck where, <laughs> stuck where I was at. Oh, dude. Uh, so I, I didn't really know, uh, you know, I was, 
trying to Google do do alligators attack <laughs> all this type of stuff, and I was uh, I I just ended up building a uh, building a big fire and and trying to make my presence known and uh, and you know trying to leave some logs on the fire so it burned through the night and sleep as close to the fire as I could. But that was uh, that was definitely a night that. I didn't get too much too much rest as I was uh, I was thinking about that gator. Man, that's a good reason to have another person along with you, just so you can take turns keeping watch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That was uh, that was definitely uh, one one of those nights where, uh, like I said, it didn't get too much sleep, and I uh, I had uh, you know the uh, the cooking knife next to me in the tent the whole, the whole evening. <laughs> oh wow, that's a good story, man. Yikes. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, it ended up well. I never ended up seeing the gator, but, uh, I, I knew it was fresh tracks. And then the next morning when I woke up as well, uh, the, the, my footprints, which were next to the gator tracks originally had been washed away. So I, I knew that, uh, those things were, were, those tracks were made that, uh, that afternoon that I, that I arrived. They were fresh. <laughs> you probably yeah. scared them off the sandbar as you paddled toward it. Yeah, I I hope so. That's for sure. I don't know. Like I said, I don't know what happened to him, but I was definitely making noise and uh, and doing some yelling and and shouting and clanking some pans <laughs> here here and there to let him know that uh, you know this was my home for the night. He could have it tomorrow, but uh, I was staying there tonight. Right on. Well, let's talk a little bit about that southern part of the river because I want to hear more about that. Um, what route did you end up taking? Because in the first show, you mentioned that there were some alternate routes that might keep you out of some of the shipping traffic. And uh, you went maybe bypassed New Orleans, or if you stayed on the main river, you would have gone through New Orleans. So how did that turn out? Yeah, absolutely. Earlier in the in the trip, I was debating whether or not to take uh, an offshoot of the Mississippi, which is called the Affalachia River. And uh, lots of folks who through paddle it do end up taking that stretch. It's a, it's a little more wildernessy, and you don't have to deal with uh, with the busy traffic and, and port cities of Baton Rouge and New Orleans. But I decided to stay with the stay with the main channel all the way all the way through to the Gulf and. Man, it was uh, it was wild. I would say the only the only section that I was nervous in or anxious uh, or stressed out was between Baton Rouge and New Orleans. Uh, once you got into Baton Rouge, man, there was freight traffic, so huge, massive oil freighters, uh, cargo ships that you would see, uh, you know, like in in the port of or in San Francisco Harbor. I told a few people the best way that I could describe it is it's not even really like you're paddling a river. A, it's so wide. It's like you're in a massive either harbor or uh, or lake, really, with a little bit of a current. And the traffic in there, man, it's it's. If you've ever seen San Francisco Harbor, I imagine uh, as a kid I saw it, and I just remember all the huge cargo ships and uh, and freighters coming from uh, you know from the Pacific and and going to Japan or wherever they may be going. And it's not too different on the Mississippi. You just have massive, massive ships. And the other thing is that on either side, uh, you have to kind of play your cards because on one side of the on the river they have uh the containers that go onto the cargo ship so if you can imagine like a 18 wheeler a semi truck take the cab off that semi truck then you have just the uh the container that the goods would be in 
essentially they have those, but they're floating on a, uh, on a barge, on a, uh, on a container. And they have all of these, uh, semi trucks essentially, uh, anchored or moored up to either bank. So there's about five or six, uh, truckloads wide that are stationed on the side of the river. And there's all kinds of little ships that are going around and, and working on those containers, moving them from one spot to the other, uh, adjusting them, getting them ready f- to load up onto the, uh, onto the cargo ships. So you can't really stay on one side because, you know, there's several hundred feet where these containers are lined up. And then there's busy bees that are moving all around these containers. Mm. And if you get too close to one side, uh, one can pop out from uh, from behind a container and not see you so you can't stick too close to the side and then when you're in the main channel you have these huge uh huge freighters that are either taking cargo or they're taking oil or uh, or they're just a, a typical barge that's pushing uh coal or grain or whatever it may be so you kind of have to pick pick your poison between baton rouge and louisiana or between baton rouge and new orleans it was uh it was just really busy and there was a few times there where i was uh certainly nervous and kind of had to have your uh your wits about you 24 7 and at one point actually i'd say the closest i got to uh to being real scared and uh and worried about how how the situation was was going to be handled i was paddling and I was near the edge of uh, of of the river, uh, alongside some of those containers that are anchored up uh, on the bank of the river, on the right bank of the river. And out of nowhere, another barge comes up northbound, and he's hugged pretty close to the uh, to the side of those containers as well. So usually I'd stay in the middle of the river, and then I'd be able to pick either left or right side of a, of a northbound vessel. But for this time, I was stuck on the side, so I didn't really have anywhere to go. And there was a gap probably of about, oh, I don't know, 15, 20 feet wide between this barge and then the moored up uh, uh, containers on the edge. And I was waiting for this barge to to pass me. And and by the time he was coming up, that gap was getting smaller and smaller. uh, as I was pushing, I didn't have time to cross his face and, and get into the wide open river. So I decided I just had to shoot the gap. So I was paddling and as I'm paddling, I'm so close to this massive barge, northbound barge that I can see the faces of the, of the pilots in, in the, uh, in the captain's deck and looking at me and holding up their arms. I could tell they were scared. I was, I was nervous. And as I'm going through, I'm shooting the gap in the, uh, the waves are all choppy coming in every direction, left, right, front, from the rear. And I'm taking on water as I'm paddling through. And it's kind of one of those moments where you don't really stop to think about the, the danger <laughs> or what you're doing. You're just trying to trying to make it through. And luckily, I was able to uh, to shoot that gap. I took on some water. And uh, once, the, once that barge passed, I took a deep breath and took about 10 minutes to sponge out the water that I took on uh, in the boat and kept on partying oh (laughs) you know the whole trip sounds so adventurous but that doesn't really sound like fun to me that part right there no Uh, i'll tell you from baton rouge to new orleans that was the only time in the river that i really didn't have fun to tell you the truth it was uh i mean i'm glad i did it and uh, and i'm glad that uh i could say i did it and, and to paddle the entire mississippi that's that's part of it but 
man, it was scary. But the other cool thing was paddling through those, uh, through those huge ocean going vessels is, uh, these ships are coming from all over, you know, Hong Kong, um, all over the world. These ships are coming in to get goods or to drop goods off. And uh, throughout, as I was getting farther south, there was times where uh, these huge freighters would honk their horns at me as I was paddling by. Or at, at one time, a couple of guys came out, came out from the captain's deck and I kind of heard a voice in the distance and I thought it was coming from shore and then I turned around and looked to my side and it's a huge uh, huge massive ocean going vessel and the captain and one of his crew were out on the uh, on the in the eagle's nest in the cockpit high up waving their arms from side to side and giving me a thumbs up and and uh, cheering me on as I was cruising by and <laughs> as it passed I saw that that ship was from Hong Kong so that was uh, that was kind of neat that is cool. You know, one thing I was going to bring up, just your description of it. Most people live where they can go to a store to get what they need, whether that's gas or, or hard goods or food or whatever. But we just, you know, we get in the habit in the U.S. of going to the store for stuff. But you actually were paddling, human-powered, through one of the main feeder points of all that stuff. So you probably get a feel for how vast and huge the economy is. You know, this massive industrial engine that keeps everybody supplied with everything that we need in this great nation. Did that kind of blow you away to see the sheer volume of all that? It, it really did, Kurt. It really did. And all along the way, I would say the most uh, the most things that I saw were, were grain. So uh, corn, rice cotton, uh, soybeans being loaded onto these barges. And then, uh, I, I talked to one fellow who was running one of the grain elevators in the town that I stopped in. And he said that they'd be loading up this ship and it would go to South America and they'd, uh, supply rice to, uh, I think it was Venezuela. And, uh, I can't remember the other countries, but some countries in South America and, yeah, just just to see that uh, all the goods coming in and out via via the Mississippi was it was pretty wild, and uh, all the oil uh, around Baton Rouge. There was a large uh, Exxon Mobil plant there, that uh, a refinery that they load up all kinds of oil in and, and take it all over the world. And it was neat too. I learned that in New Orleans and in Baton Rouge as well. Uh, supposedly they have some of the freshest coffee beans in the world because uh, they they come from uh, South America or wherever the, the coffee beans are coming from. And first stop is, uh, is the port of new Orleans. And lots of times it goes up, up river a little bit to the port of Baton Rouge. So I was able to get some, uh, some fresh coffee at some of the, some of the stops there in Southern Louisiana. And that, that was pretty neat. You know, we might be smack dab in the middle of winter these days, but spring is really just right around the corner. Make sure you've got one of our lightweight camp stoves ready to go in your pack for when the weather starts turning warmer. Both the 180 stove and the 180 flame are designed to burn the abundant wood fuels you find on the ground instead of requiring you to haul in heavy, messy camp fuels. Take a minute to head on over to our site at www.180tack.com to check out these American-made stoves that are built to last. You'll be helping us, and you'll be helping the Adventure Sports Podcast. Thanks, guys.
I want to hear about the last couple of days when you actually got south and east of New Orleans and you're getting out into the Mississippi Delta. You originally said that you had hoped that you could get out to clear water in the Gulf. That was a huge goal. But how did all that pan out? Well, the, uh, so I had originally planned to finish a day earlier than I did. Uh, however, I, I got uh, pushed off the river two days in a row due to some serious thick fog that rolled in off of the Gulf onto the river. And uh, the, the day before I was, I was trying to finish, I was paddling and it was probably about three o'clock. I was hoping to go until about five o'clock in, in the evening. And uh, I was paddling and just this thick fog rolled in. And it was so thick that you couldn't really even see 10, 20 feet in front of you. Ooh. And as I'm paddling, I'm sticking to the shoreline and I'm kind of debating my options. And then uh, I, I, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I just hear the low bass of, uh, of one of those freighter horns. <laughs> and that was enough to, uh, to scare me silly. And I couldn't see him at all, but I could hear his horn and I could hear that he was close. So I, uh, I pulled off the river uh, immediately and, and, and set up camp for the night a few hours earlier than I wanted. Uh, so that, that slowed me down a touch. But as, as I got farther south, uh, the, the last town that has road access is uh, Venice, Louisiana. It's a small little uh, sportsman area. Lots of uh, tuna, tuna fishing and sports, sportsman fishing goes out of there. And south of Venice, it's about 25 miles to the Gulf. And the, Gulf, uh, the Mississippi, south of Venice... It kind of splits into three different channels. There's one channel called the South Pass, which is the channel that I took. There's one channel called the Southwest Pass. And then uh, I think the other one would be the Southeast Pass. And the main, uh, the main traffic in terms of freighters and ocean vessels go on the Southwest Pass. So I stuck on the South Pass. And uh, the day before I got... Uh, I got to the Gulf. I ended up camping with uh, with a bunch of duck hunters, and it, it was just awesome. They were they were super amped to hear about all my stories and, and hear about the journey. And I was happy to be camping with them for the last night. Uh, they cooked me up a bunch of burgers, and uh, we shared a couple cold ones and told stories around the campfire. So that was neat. And then uh, the next morning, I woke up and and pushed the final ten miles uh, to the Gulf of Mexico and. As I got there, it was uh, it was a pretty wild feeling. I, I paddled out, and all of a sudden, uh, the banks on either side of the South Pass of this of this channel disappeared, and uh, and it turned into wide open water as as far as the eye could see. And I, I paddled out into it a good little ways, and uh, it, it wasn't that like I imagined. I kind of imagined that the river would be pouring into the ocean, and you could see the mixing of the dark Mississippi water with the blue Gulf of Mexico. It wasn't quite like that, but I definitely knew I was in the ocean as I paddled out and started feeling the currents and the ocean waves rocking my boat, uh, you know, going up and down underneath my boat, and washed my face with some salt water and uh and it was it was just absolutely amazing to see that uh just that the whole variety the whole uh horizon filled with uh filled with the ocean and there was pelicans uh, brown pelicans all around me they were circling around my head and then they would just dive bomb straight down into the ocean and uh into the water surface and grab fish and and you know kind of 
guzzle them down their uh, down their beak, and it was uh, it was amazing. After 103 days to to finally reach my goal and uh, and and hit the Gulf of Mexico. Mm. <laughs> you know, the end of a journey is such a mixed feeling, isn't it? It's like I accomplished the goal you want to celebrate, but at the same time, it's like, oh, it's over. But then at the same yeah. time, it's like, oh, thank God it's over, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, so absolutely. So what were your emotions as you experienced all that? Man, it, it, it ran the gamut. It ran the gamut. Uh, I think the first thing I did was uh, was pound my chest and let out some, some whoops and uh, a nice long string of uh, enthusiastic swear words <laughs> as, <laughs> I, as I was, uh, I was amp, pretty amped to be there and uh, just thinking about it and uh, and – yeah, just just pure excitement and and fulfillment, I guess, would be a good word to use. Uh, and and then after that, I uh, I kind of calmed down and I battled out probably about a half mile or so uh, into the Gulf and, and kind of sat there and watched those dive bombing pelicans and took in the the scenes and those waves underneath my boat. And yeah, it was. It was kind of uh, the finality of, of it all coming to fruition. 103 days. It was. Uh, I was high. I was. I was a little bit sad, but I was also ready. Uh, ready to be off the river. But at the same time, I was trying. Trying to appreciate it uh, as deeply as I could because I knew, even though that I, I was ready to uh, to put a wrap on the trip after 103 days, I knew that as soon as I got back to. Uh, to my typical typical grind here in South Dakota that I'd be dreaming and wishing I could be back on the river and uh, uh, I'd have to say after being here back here about a week that's that's definitely the case <laughs> has the re-entry been difficult you know it, it hasn't been difficult it's almost just been like riding a bike I just got right back into it I you know I got back uh, I got back to South Dakota on a late late on a Tuesday night and I worked 6 a.m. Uh, uh, the next morning and never really looked back and I've just kind of been been cruising along and trying to figure out uh, my plans for the future and what uh, what other adventures I I have in store and uh, and go from there you know I'm curious probably some listeners are too so you're out in the Gulf you're celebrating the the final stretch of the trip but you still have to get back again <laughs> so how did you get back how did you get to shore and how did you get back to your job in in dakota yeah it, it was funny it was it was a pretty uh it was a pretty unique experience to tell you the truth as uh, as i was out in the gulf i was taking it all in and i had two options uh so it was 25 miles back to venice louisiana which would have been the last town and uh, I was lucky enough to have my mom uh, fly down to New Orleans. She rented a car and uh, and was planning to meet me in Venice. And we uh, we ended up driving uh, driving back to uh, had a one way rental for the car and, and drove back to uh, to South Dakota and dropped the car off here. But getting back to Venice, uh, I figured I would either have to paddle 25 miles upstream, which uh, I was not that high on. Or uh, try and catch a ride with uh, with a fishing boat, and sure enough, that's what I did. As I uh, as I cruised down and took my time in the uh, in the ocean, I turned around after about an hour or two hours of enjoying the salt water and started paddling back upstream, figuring I'd, I'd start paddling and making my way, and then uh, if I could get a get a boat to to stop, I would uh, 
try and try and talk him into giving me a ride back to Venice. And sure enough, uh, not probably 10 minutes into, uh, into paddling upstream, uh, just a personal fishing boat, uh, had, had was cruising by and I, I waved them down and it was, uh, it was four guys, uh, four younger guys who were out for the weekend, uh, offshore. And they'd actually spent the weekend 60 miles offshore in their fishing boat, uh, fishing for tuna and marlin. And I waved them down and, uh, kind of quickly told them my story and asked if they were going back to Venice. And, and sure enough, they were. And, uh, I remember he said, the guy says, well, normally we don't pick up hitchhikers, but, uh, man, your story is amazing. So hop on <laughs> in. So right there in the middle of the river, I, uh, I grabbed onto the side of their boat. We unloaded my, uh, my canoe and all my gear into their small little fishing boat. And, uh, I, I hopped in their boat from the river. We lifted up my canoe. We brought it in. The, the canoe stretched the entire uh, the entire length of the boat. There was barely any room for uh, for all of us to to sit in the boat with the canoe in there. And we strapped her down with a couple uh, camping straps, and we were on our way and cruised about you know fifteen twenty minutes back uh, twenty five miles north to to Venice, and that's where I uh, where I met my mom, and we. Uh, strapped the canoe onto the top of the car, loaded up the rental car with all the gear and, uh, started making our way North. And the rest is history. Wow. And the rest is history. You know, the, the listeners may be interested to, uh, follow your Facebook where you were, you know, providing updates about the journey and that sort of thing. And that was something Buffalo. What was that? Yeah, Buffalo Roamer, all one word. But if you just type in Buffalo Roamer, yeah, it'll it'll pop right right up. And uh, yeah, I was uh, I was surprised at the feedback I got, positive feedback from that Facebook page. Uh, it started off just kind of as something uh, I, I really didn't want to do it at the start, to tell you the truth. But uh, you know, I was being badgered by family and friends asking, uh, how they could keep up with me and, uh, and how that, how I can share the story. So I started doing that Facebook page and more of anything, it was just kind of a, a, a journal journal entries from the days on the river. And, uh, I think there's somewhere around a thousand people who are following it now. And, uh, it's just been, uh, it's been neat to see all the feedback and, and uh, all the people, most of whom I've never met and have no idea who they are, who were uh, congratulating me and who have kind of been, uh, you know, dove into the to the Facebook page and have been following along the whole way. And uh, once I finished there, I even had folks who uh, hopped back in, and one guy shot me a message thanking me for uh, for for sharing the story, and he said that he went back and read all. 103 three entries and <laughs> said that he was inspired so that that's that was kind of neat to see oh yeah that's fantastic so buffalo roamer buffalo roamer on facebook that's the one right on well will thank you so much man for coming back on the show and giving us the rest of the story i wanted to hear how it turned out and it sounds just delightful so amazing if you ever uh want to come down to colorado look us up we'll go ski all or right something. buddy yeah, absolutely. I, I'd love to do that. And, uh, I, I try and get out there a couple times in the winter and I'll, I'll definitely try and get out. Uh, one of my favorite places on earth, Kurt is uh, Loveland pass, man, doing, doing laps on Loveland pass with the skis is, uh, that's about as close to Nirvana as I could get. Yeah. And for the listeners, it is awesome. I've done it too. It's really fun. It's free. You just shuttle in cars, but 
there's a, a nice wall above it that loads, and we had five people die there a few years ago. So make sure you know the snow conditions. You don't want to be oh, yeah. caught in a bad slide. But, man, it's no, a beautiful absolutely. place to, to catch some turns. I love it. I'm with you. It's gorgeous. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, it's certainly uh, – I, I actually uh, – not to get too sidetracked here, but I was skiing at one time, uh, and actually, uh, a, a fella who was also skiing, as you're saying, in, the, in that same, uh, in that same cirque and that same wall, uh, triggered an avalanche and, and was, uh, was partially buried in it. Luckily the, the guy was able to get out, but, uh, I, I was actually the one who called, uh, called 911 and they, they got a helicopter going for him. So it was a scary situation, but, uh, he, the guy ended up all right, was able to ski, ski, uh, ski out of it. And after, after being, uh, being found and, uh, yeah, but, but certainly <laughs> definitely know what you're doing. Yeah. The challenge with that one is when people start going higher up the wall, they might trigger a slide down to the people that are skiing below. And so it's not just what you're doing, right? You have to take into account the whole mountain. And uh, But, yep. you know, we're talking about canoeing, not skiing. So come see us. We'll talk about skiing next time. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Kurt. Sounds good, man. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, love the podcast and looking forward to uh, to getting inspired from uh, from some of the future episodes and, and future guests you got lined up. Cool, man. Well, thank you so much. And hey, for all the listeners out there, until the next show, get out there and have some fun. And if this one doesn't excite you, I don't know what would, man. What a cool journey that was. So get out there and have some fun. Coming up on Thursday's episode, Rob Harsh is here to talk about how he transformed his life through adventure. Until then, get out and have some fun. You're not leaving yet, are you? Why don't you do yourself and us a favor and become a member of our Facebook group. In there, you can hear about some awesome adventures, learn how to do new ones, and share what you've been up to. And while you're on the web, do us a favor and go over to patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast and consider becoming a patron to help the show. You can also find a link to patron at the top of our website at adventuresportspodcast.com. As always, thanks for listening, guys.